1: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome in Wins and Losses. I am Clay Travis, and we have a fantastic guest, a guy I have been a fan of. I'm going to be straight up right out the top. Auburn men's basketball coach Bruce Pearl is with us. And, coach, you are down right now at the Final Four in New Orleans. And, you know, with these wins and losses conversations, the hope is that people are going to enjoy them for a long time to come, but just kind of setting in context here. And so I'll start with this question. What does it feel like to go to the final four? What does it feel like to almost go to the final four? What is the experience like to coach in the NCAA tournament? And how long (laughs) does it take when you either win or lose in the NCAA tournament? to get over the experience, if that makes sense, to kind of start with contextually.
0: Hey, Clay, if this was the first question, right, we're going to need more than an hour, okay? <laughs> uh, because, and, and I think the wins and losses thing, when you bring Bruce Pearl on the show, you get all that. You get the wins and the losses, <laughs> which I think is really, really good. Um, you, it's, com- every, it's completely different. First of all, the Final Four is the National Association of Basketball Coaches' Um, meetings. It's our annual meeting. So when you're not playing in the Final Four, you're basically hobnobbing with your fellow Wizards, uh, catching up on how bad the officiating was all year long, (laughs) rule changes, uh, you know, Eating too much, um, and, uh, and, and 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 you know, kind of celebrating your seasons, having meetings, you know, looking at you know, uh, the different apparel and the different equipment and all the different things that out there, things that you would do uh, at, at at conventions. Um, if you're in it, um, you're on a magical carpet ride, and you're wondering how in the world did a bum like me get to be on a stage like this. And be playing for a national championship, and you you just stop and thank God and for the thank for the blessing and and um, and you just hope that you are up to the task uh, to help your team uh, win a national championship. And then when you don't get here, but you almost got here, and maybe should have, could have gotten here, um, you replay every play, every call, every preparation. I should have done this. I could have done that. If we did this. We could possibly be, be still playing, but I think when you do that, that's how you get better um, because, you know, I'm not going to sit still. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reload, I'm going to rebuild, and I'm going to grow as a coach because uh, I want to get back here and I want to win one.
1: So I got so many things that I want to dive into, with, but I just want to start with your career. You mentioned how fortunate you feel to make it to a Final Four, which you did with Auburn. You were close a lot of times with Tennessee, but when you were coaching at Southern Indiana, and I think you started off at Stanford and then you were at Iowa and you're grinding and you're working as hard as you can, Um, sometimes you don't ever... I'm curious when you're at Southern Indiana and you're a coach and you win a national championship there, Did you ever think, were there times where you thought, man, I'm never going to get that big job? Because the reason we we talk wins and losses and why I love the concept of of this discussion, Coach, is there's so much focus, and you know this, on success. You have success. People want to hear about how amazing it is. What does it feel like? But I feel like you oftentimes learn more from the losses along the way. And I've talked about things that have gone in my career that I didn't anticipate I'm sure you have had, like you said, so many different ones. When you are coaching at Southern Indiana and you turn on the television and March Madness is on and you see a Coach K or you see a Roy Williams and you see guys who have been doing it for a long time, did you feel – I've told this story before, Coach, where I remember going to AAA baseball uh, and watching a game, and this is probably 15 years ago uh, or so for me now, maybe 10, where I thought, man, I'm in AAA in my career right now. It seems so close to get to the major leagues. I can see a path, but I don't know if I'll ever get that opportunity. Do you ever have those thoughts along the way as you climbed yourself up towards a guy who could coach in the NCAA tournament?
0: Yes and no. Um, here's, th- this is what comes to my mind when you're asking that question. When you were na- when you were in Nashville and you were yep. doing sports talk radio in the afternoon, um you were trying to be the absolute best show in that region uh, for those three hours. Yep. And I don't think you were too terribly worried about anything other than being the best at what you were doing at that time. That's right. And one of the things that me has helped make me successful, every place I've been, I bought, I was all in. I wasn't leasing, I wasn't renting. I wasn't one foot in and one foot out looking for the next best thing. And I think so many times people in life, especially in their early stages, it's okay to think big, it's okay to dream, but take advantage of what you got, what's right there in front of you, and do an amazing job and put yourself in position for other opportunities to present itself. So um, the reason why I won championships every place I've been and so I treated it like it was my last job and like I wanted to be at that place forever, and I truly did. And when I had to leave because it was time to leave Division Two or go from mid-major to Tennessee, uh, you know, I got the Ziggy at Tennessee, so that really wasn't my choice. It was hard to leave. It was hard to get in the car and pull out and leave my wife and my kids and my family to go to that next best thing because I was bought and I was all in. And I think so many people make the mistake of just not doing a great job with what they got, and get, guess what? As a result, they don't get to move on. They don't get to do what you've done. They don't get to do what I've done. Now, in answer to your question directly, there was only one day a year, maybe two, when I ever thought about, man, I remember when Tom Izzo and I were assistants. He was at Michigan State, and I was at Iowa, and Tom is head coach at Michigan State, and I'm the head coach at Southern Indiana. And, and and the only time was on Selection Sunday or the first round of the NCAA tournament. When I was in Division II, I'd watch that day, and I'd say, you know what, I, want to, I do want to get there. I, I want to get there. And, and then I, But with the exception of that day, that was the only day it ever occurred to me to try to be someplace else. When you
1: were at Boston College, I think you were even the mascot. I remember hearing that story. <laughs> when did you decide hey, coaching basketball is something I might like to do? Uh, And when did you start to think, hey, this is going to be potentially a career I'll pursue?
0: Well, it's a long story, but I'll try to be brief. So I was a pretty good athlete in high school. Uh, I had a career-ending knee knee injury in high school. Uh, Boston College was the best athletic program in New England. I grew up in Boston, and so I went to BC and walked on the basketball team and got cut. Uh, Just got a bad wheel. But I met Dr. Tom Davis. Um, when I was in high school, I was coaching fifth graders. I was umpiring. I was refereeing. I was always coaching. I was always teaching. never did I think I would ever tr- wasn't trying to be a coach. I went to BC School of Management, Marketing, Economics, Political Science. I was going to go out and get a real job. My senior year, after working for Tom Davis in every capacity possible, including as a manager, uh, an assistant director of this or that. I, I, I hosted Patrick Ewing on his official visit as a, as a, as a member of the team. Um, Tom Davis called me, and he said, uh, come over to the house. And I'm like, oh, shit, what would I do wrong? Last time I had to come over to the house, I got caught streaking across campus, and he found out about it, and he saved me <laughs> from the students. And, and I'm like, well, I haven't streaked across campus in years, and sure enough, I'm driving to his house, and i went, oh, my God, he's leaving to take a job, and he's going to ask me to go with him. And sure enough, Clay, that's what he did. I was a senior at B.C. in March, graduating in June, and I went to Stanford to a Tom Davis as an assistant coach. And not one day did I work for him because I wanted to be, thought I'd be a basketball coach. Not at all. I just loved B.C. I loved B.C. basketball. I loved what I was doing. And, and little did I know that my entire life I'd been coaching. When I was playing, I was coaching. When I was, when I was playing, I was coaching little kids. So it's just something I always do always had done that was god's plan i just didn't know it till day to the day i walked in his house and the next day he and i went on a plane to stanford all
1: right that's an amazing story but i got to go back what were you streaking across campus for did you lose a bet was it uh, no. part of a how did that happen no that's
0: that was back in the day that's what we did that's just what we did we got naked we ran across <laughs> like uh, I, I did it three times once uh, school cafeteria middle school once uh, the prom <laughs> And then and then and then once at, at BC we actually we actually got in a car uh, and we went to the BC went to uh, we had there was a football game at Holy Cross out in Worcester. and uh, me and a bunch of my buddies we got in a car with a lot to drink and uh, locked our clothes in the trunk and drove to Worcester <laughs> naked and and just you know just like who had the balls to actually get out of the car you know who was going to give him the key. You know, and and, and, and I I don't remember a lot about that trip other than thank God we didn't get arrested. My parents never found out about it.
1: You know, what's funny is I'll confess to this, too. Uh, uh, When I was in college, uh, I had a bet with one of my buddies who was a Baltimore Ravens fan. Um, and, uh, And I was a Tennessee Titan fan growing up in Nashville. Yeah. And uh, we bet whoever was going to win a uh, playoff game, Titans had a playoff game against uh, the Baltimore Ravens. They lost, of course, because they always lose every playoff game. It feels like that matters just about. And uh, I had to do a, a streak around. The, I went to George Washington in D.C. So I had to streak around D.C. And what was funny about that, um, first of all, I didn't get arrested. But I think it would have been a federal offense because you're <laughs> you're in the District of Columbia. And, uh... Uh, and Coach, I remember um, in our freshman year dorm – uh, the Secret Service raided the dorm because a kid was making fake IDs, and it was a federal offense because you're in wow. the District of Columbia, right? So, you know, a lot of kids know about, you know, you're 17, 18 years old, whatever, on a college campus. You want to be able to get uh, buy a beer, or go into a bar, and so fake IDs are common. And this kid uh, in the, down the hall uh in one of the freshman dorms, yeah, they, they, the the Secret Service raided his dorm because he was making these fake IDs. But so you go, was that was not that something a, the
0: GW admissions office? is promoting very much come to GW and uh, get (laughs) drunk and and go to get a federal offense yeah
1: Yeah, no kidding uh by the way so was the culture so for me I grew up in Nashville and there was a big culture shock for me going to GW because it was a very northeastern school and I grew up in the south and it was more brusque I think it was great for me because people were tougher harder edge thicker skinned it was good for me at eighteen or nineteen years old to get used to that in a way, maybe that it wouldn't have for my career. Was it a culture shock for you to go from Boston to Stanford, like uh, to, to take that job? Or because Palo Alto is amazing, but I have to think that Boston and Palo Alto were not that similar, at least for you as a kid growing up in the in the Northeast.
0: No, th- it was very different. Uh, you know, growing up in Boston, um, you know, I was born in nineteen sixty. I lived through the era of force busing, yeah. um, saw it, saw real racism, saw real racial tension, uh, real white-on-black fights, uh, t- tremendous anti-Semitism. Um, that stuff all mattered. Um, and while there are some amazingly wonderful ethnic neighborhoods in Boston, the Italian North End, the Irish South Boston, uh, the Jewish quarter of Mattapan, Dorchester, Blue Hill Avenue... Um, there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, identity um, that that wound up creating a lot of conflict and as a coach and team builder, um, it bothered me to my core um, the, in, 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 When we play sports and we go to the playground it 's shirts and skins i don 't give a rat 's ass what color you are. can you rebound? Can you make a shot um, i don 't care whether you go to temple or church or, or if you don 't you know can you guard somebody? And, and and we play as kids and and, and we're not we're, we're not identifying each other that way and but our parents and our grandparents maybe are or were and and so I was so glad I grew up in Boston to see the greatness of the ethnicity but the damage that it could do as it relates to, to the relationships then the second thing in answer to your question so I grew up at Kennedy Democrat you know, um, you know, the Kennedy family, you grew up in in, in Boston at that oh, yeah. time. I mean, it was just like, oh my god, they you know, it and and, and so much they were heroes, absolutely heroes. And and, and 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 why not? Um and then as I drove across the country on my slash honeymoon and also my when I drove out there to start working at Stanford, um, and I was always a Boston Globe reader, um I began to pick up newspapers back in the day. Uh, the newspapers used to report things, and if you wanted an opinion, <laughs> you picked up the back of the page and read the editorial, yeah. and you found out what the opinions were. And Clay, what I, what I came to know then, back in 1970, uh, excuse me, 1982, when I traveled across the country, is that the same story that would be written in the Boston Globe would be a completely different story in the Indianapolis Star and the Des Moines Register, and the LA Times, it blew me away. And I came to realize then the incredible power of the media, and how the media could absolutely control, I say control, not influence, the minds and the makeup of the readers. And I—and it scared the crap out of me. And then, of course, I, I went out west, and and you know, and 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 I see the good in everybody, Clay. I do. I see the good. I saw greatness out in California, things that I loved, and most of it was the weather. Um, and, <laughs> it is compelling. and um, And yeah, and then through coaching, I was able to you know, get into the Midwest and the South, and I've I've seen this great, great, great country of ours, and um, yeah. But it, it's amazing where you live. Um, and uh, what you read or what you watch or listen to has an, an awful lot to who you are and what you believe.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, by the way, now that you mention it, what was it like to be a Jewish kid going to Boston College, a you know, Catholic Jesuit school? Did that feel incongruous to you or did you feel comfortable there despite obviously a religious difference? I don't know what the vibe is like at Boston College yep. or what it would have been like for you from 78 to 82 in the, the time that you would have been there
0: yep, Clay, I went to B.C. for a reason. I went to B.C. just for exactly that reason. Um, You know, there are stereotypes and there are perceptions. Um, There aren't uh, a tremendous number of Jewish athletes uh, out there. That would be a stereotype. Could it be factually true? I don't know. But the perception of a Jewish man would be, you know, you're going to be a doctor or you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be in real estate, you're going to be smart, you're going to make money, whatever that stereotype or perception you know, necessarily would be. It wouldn't necessarily be digging ditches uh, or being an athlete against all stereotypes. And I came, to, I came to understand that I could change that. That I could go to Boston College, with, with with a very large Catholic population, and they could see me pray, they could see me sweat, they could see me work, and if they wanted to put a, if they wanted to fight me because I had to fight a lot when I grew up for being Jewish, I didn't tell them I was Jewish. I told them I was re- Israeli, and then I asked them if they wanted to go. Like, you want to dance? I'm Israeli. Let's dance.
1: With the idea being that Israeli people were thought to be tougher, is that is that what you were thinking? When you were like,
0: yeah, damn, damn right, damn straight, and and yes, and and that's what I wore. You know, that was my armor. That was my courage. That was my. I I could look to Israeli leaders for strength, and I did as as a young Jewish boy, Um, and you know what, all it all it was Clay was getting to know each other overcoming you know the ignorance of never really having a Jewish friend or never really having a black friend or ne- and 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 so my life has been through sports and it started at a very young age saying dude we are we are brothers abraham is the father of all nations we are brothers from another mother but our fathers the same he's the same guy that 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 brings us together. I tell people all the time when I as as I've never been more religiously comfortable anywhere in my life than in the South. Nowhere among among evangelical Christians, um, because when you go to services there, they read from the Old Testament, they talk about Jesus being a rabbi and being a Jew and when i hear that as a coach and as a, as somebody that, whose whole life is about bringing people together i'm saying there it is jesus brings us together he doesn't separate us my whole life growing up jewish that was a separator they believe jesus was the son of god we don't they believe he was the messiah we don't there's the line the sand That's the bloodline it's drawn. And if you live on this side or that side, we're willing to go to war over it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Their God, their number one guy, their dude, the greatest guy to ever walk the face of the earth, Jesus, was Jewish. He celebrated Passover. He celebrated the, he walked to Israel, to Jerusalem. How many times a year to celebrate the new year, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? Dude, that, that connects us. Whether you don't think so or not, I do. It's right there in the history books. And then that's who I have sort of become. Can't we look at the things that we have more in common than the things that separate us?
1: It's such a, I, I, There's so much to unpack there. Did you early on recognize, because that's really what you have to do as a coach, right? The coach's yep. job is to bring people who may have tremendous differences into a cohesive whole. Much of what goes on in the country today is the opposite of that, right? You appeal to a certain segment of the population in the hopes that you can motivate that group to support you going up against somebody else. Now that obviously your team in some level is going to have to go up against other teams. But when you go to Southern Indiana, you've been at Stanford, you've been at Iowa, you've been an assistant coach. How did you end up there? And what was the experience like to go from being an assistant coach to being a head coach? How much did you have to learn? And I'll give you an analogy here that I love, um, that I think you'll appreciate. Um, Back in the day, I remember hearing a great story from Norm Chow, and I think it's a great metaphor, larger universe for people as they engage in a new job. When he became a head coach for the first time, and I think it was at Hawaii, he was standing on the sideline, clock was running down, and he thought to himself, boy, somebody really should call a timeout. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then he thought, wait a minute. I'm the guy. I've got to call the timeout. I'm the head coach. He had come from being an offensive coordinator where you watch somebody else have to make the call, right? Like you can be yep. in the headset saying, boy, somebody should call a timeout. But he yep. was thinking to himself as he watched the clock, boy, somebody should call a timeout. And then he thought immediately, like early in his coaching career, you're the head man. You know, he'd still a line from uh, Harry Truman. The buck stops with me. I suddenly have to make that call. What is it like to go from an assistant as you work your way up, grinding, no telling how many hours to suddenly be in the guy who has to call that timeout, who has to make that decision. How did you find that transition?
0: If you went to work every day as an assistant and felt like you had a very impactful role like Norm Chow had as a coordinator, um, then there's not as big a transition. Um, to be in the head coach. But if you went to work and just simply punched the clock and really didn't take it home at night and worry about it and and were sleepless because you couldn't get this done or that done um, or couldn't go back to sleep because your mind couldn't get off of what plays you should be calling, then there's a huge jump and then you're not ready for it. Um, And I think because I was an assistant and I tried to care uh, and I wore it on my sleeve, I wasn't impacting the games nearly as much as the head coach or the players but but it mattered as much to me as it did to them, and so if it matters to you, I think that adjustment uh, is a lot less. The pressure uh, and the anxiety uh, is greater. Um, you know, every time a head coach gets fired, um, oftentimes they coach a little better off financially, sometimes a lot better off financially, but down goes his staff and yep. their families and the trainers and the strength coaches and the nutritionists and the statisticians and all those other people who aren't as financially secure. And so I wear that. I have a responsibility. Clay, when I got fired at Tennessee because I lied to the NCAA about a, a stinking barbecue. Yeah. All right? All right? And all I had to do was in my in my interview with the NCAA, I didn't have an attorney. Why? I don't need an attorney. I didn't do anything wrong. They were going to ask me a bunch of questions about some phone calls. We're fine. Who goes into one of those without an attorney? My dumbass. And then all of a sudden they pull out a, a picture, and it's a picture of a couple of players that had a dinner at my house with a hundred other people, and if they were a year older, they legally could be there, but they weren't a year older. They were a year younger, and we already had them committed, so we didn't gain any advantage. But instead of just telling the truth, Myself and my assistants didn't and panicked and went back to the office and called the NCAA up and went, you know what, you guys got to come back. We didn't tell you the truth. Um, But when I made that mistake, which I am accountable for, and I know I minimized it right there, and I shouldn't have done that because what I did in in, in not telling the truth um, cost myself my job, my reputation, but it also impacted those other families. Thank God Steve Forbes is the head coach at Wake Forest University, and Jason Shea is assistant, and, um, and I'm at Auburn, and, um, and, 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 and everything is good.
1: I'm curious, when you left, and I'm going to come back to Tennessee because I, I do think that's a fascinating part of your story, uh, but when you left southern Indiana, is it valuable to learn? You, you said you had kind of thought of yourself as a head coach, maybe as an assistant coach. Is it valuable to learn without everybody watching you as a head coach? And, and, and what I mean by that yeah. is yeah. there are a lot of guys who get their first job, and when they get their first job, they're immediately going to be criticized and analyzed in excruciating detail over being that head coach. How much did being – and I'm sure there were media that covered you – but how much did being under the radar in some way as a head coach at Southern Indiana – make you a better coach was that a better pathway than maybe in retrospect having gotten a head job uh, at an NCAA major institution where people are paying attention on a day-to-day basis
0: well Bo Ryan who coached at Wisconsin coached at Wisconsin Prattville in division three and Wisconsin Milwaukee in division one mid-major before he ever got the Wisconsin job and when Bo was at Prattville I was an assistant in Iowa getting ready to take that Southern Indiana job, Division Two. And he said, BP, let me tell you something. It's the greatest thing I did. You know, uh, I learned how a coach. I cut my teeth. And understand this, Clay. You might only get one shot of being a head coach, and you better win. Because if you don't win, you might never get another shot. Guys get it. They lose. They go back and be assistants. Maybe a few years later, they'll forget about what they did when they got their chance, and maybe they get another chance. But most of them don't. So the key is you, you better win. And you better take a job that you think you got a chance to win because it's only chance your only chance to get, you know, to get another job. Um, but Division Two is really good. Division Three is really good because guess what? There's great coaching at those at those places. Uh, sometimes almost better coaching than Division One. Division One you got good coaches, but guys that can recruit, guys that can run programs, but not necessarily all of them being great coaches. Um, and I think that uh, I think you know that that would be. Um, obviously, a, a a a great you know training ground uh, and a great preparation. Uh, not just not having as much attention. Um, look, no matter what you do, you got to win. You know, when you're winning, when you're winning, they're worried you're going to leave, and when you're losing, they're packing your bags. So coaches are always coming or going.
1: You won a national championship, by the way, at Southern Indiana in your third year. And then you continue to coach there. I'm looking at right now two hundred and thirty one and forty six. How tough of a decision was it to make to go to D one and to take Wisconsin Milwaukee?
0: I'm sitting I'm sitting on my porch with my wife and uh, and and we are, you know, I got it going on at Southern Indiana. You know, what are they paying you
1: I'm, by the way? What are you making at Southern Indiana at the time of ballpark? At the ballpark? end of the
0: day, no really at the end of the day now. I was I started fifty six thousand. Um Back in 1993, I took a pay cut uh, to 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 be an assistant coach. I was an assistant coach at Iowa. I took about a twenty five thousand dollar pay cut to move to Evansville, Indiana, to become a Division II head coach. Was that but a we tough sell so much. to
1: your wife to to take the pay It was pay okay. Cut and- it
0: was it was okay. It was it, it, I wanted I, I, you know what you got to take chances. You got to bet on yourself. And so I wanted to be a head coach, and that was my but that was my chance. I left when I was thirty two years old. I was ready. Tom Davis said to me two things when I left him. If your teams look like our teams, that would be a good thing. Teach what you know how to teach. Don't leave me and go learn a new system. This is a system you know. Make it your own. Make it better. But, but let this be your foundation, the Gary Williams, Tom Davis system of, of coaching basketball. And a second piece of advice he gave me was be yourself. I could never be Dr. Tom Davis. He was a completely different guy. He was way smarter than I am. He was more patient than I was, whatever the case was. But it was great advice because that way I could always be myself. I didn't have to try to be something else. I could be authentic, well, like it or not, right? Clay, you know me. People like yep. me. People hate me. It's win or lose, right? It's, there's, there's no vanilla when it comes to Bruce Pearl. And, and it's not because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to play to my base, and, I, and I'm not trying to to, uh, to please the enemy. Um, I know I know who my family is, I know who my friends are, and I know who my opponents are. And um, so no, and then when I when I when I then when I left Southern Indiana as a Division 2 coach, I had worked up my own TV show, my own radio show. I mean, I had it going on. And I got myself up to where I was making about $180,000. And to go to Division 1 Wisconsin Milwaukee, I took the job for 115,000. I went from a Division 2 job and a, and, a, and a very modest town to where i could barely afford the rent in milwaukee and built that up after a few years and did better and then finally four years later at milwaukee i beat alabama beat boston college and then tennessee came calling
1: did you know your life had changed because a lot of those mid-major coaches i mean by the way i think that's an incredibly instructive i always like to ask people what their salaries were because a lot of people on the way up remember them And I'm glad you told this story. And by the way, we're talking with Bruce Pearl. I'm Clay Travis. Uh, This is Wins and Losses. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. I'm glad you told that story because a lot of people believe that in order to go to a new job, they have to make more money than they made at the old job. And what I try to tell people, ask people ask for advice or questions, I say don't think about what you're making. Think about what you can do. And I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, Coach, but I bet it makes a lot of sense to you. I'm big on the idea of the adjacent possible. And what I mean by the adjacent possible, if people haven't heard it before, is if you take a new job, do you have opportunities to do things that you didn't at your old job? Easy example, yep. you couldn't go to the Sweet 16 – at Southern Indiana. You could win the D2 National Championship there, but you couldn't go to the Sweet 16. So you go from 180 to 115. Many people would say, oh my god, that's a big step back. Same thing when you took 56k to go to to Southern Indiana, and you're taking less than you were making as an assistant at Iowa. People can look at that and say, oh my goodness, why would you go back? But sometimes you're going back because the future is so much more positive, right? Is that kind of the thought process that you were in when you made that decision to go to Wisconsin-Milwaukee?
0: Yeah, yeah, that was it. And, um, you know, I I wanted to, you know, you start off with those questions, I did want to coach in the NCAA Division 1 Championship, and I think the biggest thing was simply this. I was comfortable at Iowa before I became a head coach, and becoming a head coach made me a lot more uncomfortable, challenged me I was comfortable winning 231 games and losing 46, and I had the best job in Division II at Southern Indiana in a great town. And I got uncomfortable taking a really bad job at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for no money in a league with Butler and and Detroit and UIC and Loyola. And, and you know, we beat Butler three out of four years uh, to win that league and um, got uncomfortable. And then the other thing, too, I think is very interesting, Clay, is this. Um, people that know, let's say, Clay Travis, they may really only know you for the last year. Yeah. The guy that took over for Rush, the guy that's a regular guest on Hannity, guy that th- this guy, right? All right? And there, are, there are other people that knew you 10 years prior. Then there are other people that knew you 10 years prior to that. Here's my point. Everybody else sees you as the Clay Travis you are today. But you know what? You don't. You see the guy that you've known. How old are you? 42. You know the guy for 41 years. They only know you for the last year. So for me, I'm 62. For 45 years, I was broke. I was an assistant. I was a Division II coach. I was nobody from nowhere. Yeah, we were winning, but I was so far off the radar now, when I walk into a home, or I walk around a final four, or I'm on wins and losses right now with you, it's the Bruce Pearl from Auburn and Tennessee that people know, but that's not the guy that I still know. Like I still won't buy a whopper unless it's two for four dollars. I ain't paying, you know the 369 or 379 for that one whop. I'm not, Because I was poor for 45 years. And, and, and that's, that's who I really am. And, 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 and people just don't know that when they bump into people that are, you know, sort of at a place right now where I'm, I'm at the top of my profession right now. But I, I, didn't, I didn't start here.
1: <laughs> no, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my question. When you got the job at Tennessee, suddenly you start making money, right? And also the attention that comes with that. And I always like to ask people, and look, I, I did not have uh, substantial money either. Like, I was al- would never order, you mentioned the Whopper, I would never order something that was anywhere near the most expensive thing on the menu. Uh, right. You know, like if you sit down in a restaurant, you're like, oh man, I would ne- now it's a good thing to not have to worry about that. I was going to ask you, when you got to the point where, and maybe you're still not there, which is also fascinating, where you could go to a restaurant, uh, and I'm not saying it's like the most expensive restaurant in the world, but you don't worry about what something costs. You still in your mind, every time you sit down, you look at the prices on the on the menu and, and, and are conscious of, of, uh, of those 45 I, years when you didn't have the money to order whatever you wanted?
0: Well, I do. I do a little bit because I remember, you know, I, I remember that you know, we went out to dinner on Sunday, um, every other Sunday. Uh, I had everything I needed as a kid. But literally going to a restaurant, that was an every other Sunday. Uh, an ice cream cone, that was for a really good report card. Um, that wasn't just like, let's go get an ice cream. We're hungry. That was, you know, hey, we, had a, we got a good report card. Let's go get an ice cream. Um, and that's how I grew up. And so I sort of still fell that way. I still go to the clearance rack. I walk into a store. You know, I am right I'm right over that come right over that clearance rack, man. You go to a pro shop right now, man, you walk in a pro shop and, and you look at what they want for some of them shirts? Uh, yeah. I just go over there, right?
1: Yeah, I know. I mean, look, I get made fun of all the time for the clothes that I end up wearing. I mean, I buy stuff at Costco a lot. I mean, right off the, you know, like I get, I eat the samples and, uh, and you know, like I'll buy, I mean, my kids make fun of me. I've got a lot of Kirkland brand stuff because I just, I mean, one, I'm probably clueless. My wife, uh, is is better at spending money on, on clothes. Certainly there's a lot of, a lot of people out there listening, nodding along right now and shoes for God knows. Uh, but I'm kind of clueless a lot of times on it. So, uh, it doesn't register. I mean, you know, when I went to GW, there were a lot of kids with a lot of money, and they would always, you know, somebody would say, "Hey, did you see, uh, you know, what what uh, what that guy is, uh, you know, what that guy's jeans cost, or what that girl's purse?" Cost? I, I was so right. clueless on it, I didn't even notice. Like it just went right over my head, and I think there's a benefit to that, but it is. So you go to Tennessee. So what? Was it like, and, and this is where we met, uh, because right. I'm a long time, my grandfather played for General Nealon back in the day, people know who are listening, uh, and and so I grew up going to games, and that, that was the big trip we would take growing up in Nashville, get to go to watch a game in Nealon Stadium, uh, and I was there for Thompson Bowling when it opened back in 1988, got to go watch games there, that was as big as things got, and you got to Tennessee and Tennessee did not have an illustrious record, certainly basketball history-wise necessarily, certainly not to go to six straight NCAA tournaments like you did. Uh, what was that experience like to go from, I'm sure there were fans at Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Southern Indiana, and I'm sure you cultivated them well, but what was walking into a, uh, a fan base that was as hungry for success as Tennessee like for you?
0: Yep, yeah, Clay, for the first time in my career, uh, I was probably a little bit over my head. Um, I was 40 years old. Um, I had more talent. I had left more talent at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee than I inherited at Tennessee. Um, and I, But I wasn't playing in the Horizon League. I was in the SEC. Um, and uh, uh, it was um, almost overwhelming. But, you know, we had some interesting pieces Um and we had a great point guard in C.J. Watson. Yep. We had a, a – um, that, that really, really was, was – was needed a fresh start. Uh, Chris Lofton had a great freshman year uh, for Buzz Peterson. Uh, and, of course, nobody, Kentucky and Louisville. Um, and, um, you know, nobody had recruited Chris out of Maysville, Kentucky. And um, he, he was going to leave. I mean, everybody told me, you're losing your best player. He's leaving. And I said, well, I mean, okay, he's leaving, he's leaving. I'd love to meet with him one time, but I'll, I'll meet with him. So I, I met with the team. Um, and, you know, of course, you know, we need to tighten things up. There wasn't a ton of discipline. You know, guys were missing class. They were late for things, so on and so forth. And so um, my very first night on the job, my next mor- the next morning, uh, I get a report that, like, five kids missed class. And, and, and a couple kids were late. And believe it or not, ironically, one of those kids was Chris Lofton, who's never liked anything. He's the perfect kid, right? Well, I called those seven kids up, and, I, you know, so tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., um, you're running. And, uh, you know, at first, oh, come on, coach, you know, I, just, I won't happen. I said, look, I told you guys the other night that, you know, that you're going to start going to class and doing these things. You've already gotten all your second and third chances. You had to get there at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. pack your bags and and, and leave and uh, Chris Lofton showed up to that run and so did those other six guys and that's when he called home that night he said coach he said mom and dad I'm staying at Tennessee
1: and that changed everything for you because boy oh boy was he fun to watch now you also and this is something that I think is significant you've talked about how you use sports to make a difference beyond the world of sports and Chris Lofton's story, and certainly the 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 work you did with Pat Summit, uh, who I know you had a tremendous relationship with. In fact, let me ask you: What was Pat Summit like for people out there who are not familiar with UT's women's basketball coach? She's one of the most legendary coaches of all time. Did you know much about Pat Summit before you got to Tennessee? You guys hit it off, but what was she like?
0: Yeah, she was just a sweetheart. Um, Pat could Pat would have been um, she would have been successful no matter what she did, if she was a university president, if she was president of a country, if she was a United States Senator, if she was a men's baseball coach or a women's basketball coach, Pat summit would have been, would have been one of the best to ever do it. That's just how she was driven, uh, how she was raised. Um, she was an inc- incredible mom. She was a great friend. She was loyal and she created a brand. Clay, how in the world could the, could the Tennessee Volunteers have ever walked away from the Lady Vols? I mean, yeah. when we were the Vols at Tennessee, that was like nothing compared to being a Lady ball. Yeah. Like, and then and then and then and then these you know these cancer comp- culture folks that are on the other side of things, or these these women's activists, they looked at. Lady this as somehow not being as good as, oh, we got to be the Lady Bulldogs. we got to be the Lady this or that. No, we're Bulldogs. Well, guess what? At Tennessee, the Lady Vols had it going on, and the Vols weren't shit compared to the Lady Vols. (laughs) It's
1: so true. It's so true. And and they gave it up. Yeah.
0: Pat Summitt created the Yankees. She was the Dallas Cowboys. She was the brand for women's college basketball. She was the face. And she owned it. And um, obviously Tennessee, you know, Tennessee loved her for it. And it was just tragic, you know, that we lost her, um, you know, at such a young time. And then as far as Chris Lofton is concerned, you know, the, the story behind him outliving cancer. And, of course, we went and we began Outlive, O-U-T, L-I-V-E. And that was Tennessee basketball's fight against cancer. Um, Chris was diagnosed with cancer uh after we lost to Greg Oden, and Mike Conley, in the NCAA tournament, a random drug test turned up the fact that he either had taken steroids, he was pregnant, or he had testicular cancer. We were all <laughs> rooting for pregnant, but that didn't happen. And uh, and he fought it. And he won. He came back his senior year, and uh, and 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 then after Chris graduated, we started Outlive. We raised over two million dollars. Uh, for the University of Tennessee Hospital Cancer Institution. In fact, I'm very proud that the chemo uh, hut, chemo and radiation hut on the fourth floor, I believe, of the Cancer Institute is the Bruce and Brandy Pearl uh, chemo uh, hut, if you will. And um, I brought that campaign to Auburn, and uh, we do AUT, outlive, A-U-T, L-I-V-E, and this year alone, we're going to put $250,000 in the pockets of cancer patients in the state of Alabama who are having financial challenges while they're fighting their cancer. Because, as you know, cancer is something that it's not a one—you know—it's not a one-trip pony. You got to you got to do the radiation and the chemo, it, the surgery. It can take years. That takes you out of work, and that sometimes makes it really hard to pay the bills.
1: How can people donate and be involved? By the way, because there's a lot of people listening right now. I mean, that's phenomenal work. They uh, just—I'm assuming they can type in on Google basically. A U T
0: A U T L I V E. Every penny will go to a person that is uh, in financial need. Um, We even—we even when I first got here did it we did we sent some money home to Tennessee but right now we're working with 12 agencies and hospitals in Alabama so outlive.com and we'll get that money to a family more than one family that uh, that needs it
1: if you could go back and recoach any game that you had at Tennessee I don't know if you go back and watch and I'm curious on that like uh oh, that's you know, an easy answer that's easy yeah what game would you want
0: it gets Michigan State to go to the Final Four.
1: I was there um, for that one. I watched that in person. What, what would you? What? Yeah. What would oh, you change no about brainer. the way you easy, coached it?
0: Oh, it's an easy fix, Clay. It's an easy fix. So we are um, we are down. Um, I think we're down one. No, wait a second. We're we're tied, and it's late in the game. And Scotty Hobson, I call Scotty's number to get downhill, he gets downhill, he gets fouled. Um, and um, he makes the first one, and we go up one. Yeah. I have Wayne Chisholm and Brian Williams on the free throw line, and Casey misses. That was a big mistake. They're both big kids. I should have had them both back. you got a one-point lead. Take them off the line. Make or miss, get your defense established. Scotty misses the second one. Both Brian and Wayne go chasing down the rebound. Michigan State gets the rebound. They outlet it. They get down the floor. And with about three seconds left, maybe, they get the ball to the rim, and J.P. Prince is called for a foul. I actually think he got it clean. If I just took Brian and Wayne off the line, um, we would have defended that. We'd have beaten Michigan State. We'd have gone to Indianapolis, where Peyton Manning was the quarterback for the Colts, and we would have played the Final Four. The first game have against Butler. The game Butler almost beat Duke at the buzzer. That have been that have been uh, it have it, been uh, us um, uh, in that Final Four, um, and Peyton Manning would have been sitting on my bench because he obviously owned the stadium. <laughs>
1: so how quickly after the game did you realize you had made that wrong decision to have both those guys on the free was it like instantaneous in the locker room after
0: no the minute the minute we fouled the minute we fouled, the minute those guys chased the ball down it's like oh need to get them off the line and get them back
1: um so you're that close to the final four how long does it take to get over that game
0: um I'll let you know when I do yeah you
1: know, I mean, still, you I still think about because you because you think you could have won a national championship potentially that year, right? You go to the final yeah, four, I, Butler. I, I, thought
0: Duke, I thought Duke was the only team uh, uh, that we could. It was like West Virginia, uh, Butler, Duke, and Michigan State. It would have been Auburn. We would have played West Virginia. I think we would. I think we would have beaten them, and then we would have gotten Duke in the championship game. Duke was better than us. Duke, Duke, Duke won the national championship that year. But I would, you know, obviously would like to. You know, had a shot at him.
1: When you lose your job at Tennessee, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, over – I think the NCAA shortly thereafter made that not even a penalty, right? Um, Yeah. In in terms of having like a 17-year-old, I think it was a junior, over to the barbecue, as you mentioned. Uh, So you get in trouble not for really the the infraction, but lying about it. Do you still – should Tennessee have stood behind you? You've seen a lot of coaches that have had a lot of different issues – yeah. Uh that universities have stayed behind stood behind them. That may have changed somewhat uh in the last, you know, seven or eight years, maybe more so than back then. Yeah. But do you wish Tennessee had stood behind you and supported you uh yep. and and if they had I'm I'm assuming you still think you'd be at Tennessee.
0: Yeah, no. I I I think look, a couple things happened at that time. Um, you know, first of all, you know, should Tennessee have fired Philip Fulmer? A year after he went to the SEC championship game right. and almost beat LSU, who won the national championship, uh, and the answer is yes. Um, eight games later, they fire him, um, and 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 the reason why they fired Phillip Fulmer was because he beat everybody except he had a hard time beating this guy that just got the job at Florida named Urban Meyer, yeah. and. Um, uh, you know what, and the guy name?
1: who just got the uh, Alabama job uh, suddenly I Nick Saban, yeah,
0: Saban, yeah, Sabin. yeah, yeah. Well, little did Tennessee realize at that time that nobody had beaten Urban Meyer would beat Urban Meyer or Saban, but they didn't know that at the time, and they should have. He owned Georgia and South Carolina and Vanderbilt and Kentucky and everybody else he played, and um, nine wins and the Outback Bowl wasn't enough. Yeah, all right. And and, and and obviously they're still they're still cursed for it. And then you know from my standpoint, the Tennessee fans were wonderful, Clay, absolutely wonderful. And I apologize to them for making a mistake. Um, but the leadership at Tennessee, um, at that time, the board of trustees, the president, um, didn't stand behind me. I think Mike Hamilton, R.A.D., AD, tried, uh, but he wasn't able to. And um, no, it was uh, it was it was a it was it was very hurtful. Um, I still love Tennessee. Because I love the fans there, I love the people there, um, and and I, I gotta tell you, I'm glad that I'm at Auburn. Um, I, again, God had a plan, and I'm not saying it was His plan for me to make a mistake like that, but obviously He saved me, uh, offered me grace, and I wound up going to Auburn. And for me, this has been the great. This has been the greatest fit for me. Um, Auburn is a fantastic place, and by the way, if your kids don't go to Tennessee, they should really they should really look no seriously. Yeah, knowing who you are and knowing what you're all about, being an Auburn man or an Auburn woman, loving God, loving country, um, man, Auburn is a, is a, a we need more places like Auburn in our country educating our kids, and you this know, country would be even better off if we had more places like Auburn. It's, it's interesting
1: you say that, and, and I'm going to come back to it in a sec. How much beating up of yourself? You and I got to know each other. You would come on and break down uh, college basketball for us back when we were doing the, the 3HL show in Nashville. Yep. And you stayed in Knoxville, and you took a job outside of basketball. And you're there close to the University of Tennessee. You had to sit out, I think, was it three years? Uh, yep. Where you're not allowed to coach how much did you beat yourself up over that experience how tough was it to stay in knoxville and be so close to a job that you had obviously loved while not knowing necessarily if you were going to get that next job and i'll ask you about how you came to pick auburn and how that came together but how tough was those were those three years for you
0: well uh they were tough um but 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 there's, there was one very simple reason behind it. I looked at one other coaching job. Uh, Donnie Nelson uh, offered me the Dallas Legends job in the G League, um, yep. and I almost took it. And I always appreciate uh, Coach Carlisle um, and and, and uh, those guys for giving me that opportunity. Um, but I was a divorced dad, and I had an eighth grader and a, and a young one in high school. And I just couldn't leave Knoxville for that reason. I, I just, I couldn't leave them. I couldn't take them with me. And I, I, I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't want to leave town uh, having just recently been divorced. And so I, I had to stay in Knoxville. And Bill Sanson, the H.D. Heightney company, uh, gave me an opportunity. You see those trucks running all over, all over the place with that big H, uh, delivering stuff into convenience stores. That, along with XM Radio, along with 3HL, along with ESPN. I worked about six jobs to try to, you know, pay all the mortgages and pay all the things I had to pay. Um, And, um, and then when Tennessee, when Auburn came knocking, it really was partly a recommendation that Mike Hamilton made to his friend, Jay Jacobs, who was the AD then and said, you need to hire him. This guy's good. Character wasn't an issue. Um, It, it it, don't for better or worse. It's our culture, and our character, our greatest strength. And, um, the, the coaching staff that i put together the men i have around our kids um and um and so everything everything's worked out really really well for us club Blessed be all I remember
1: when you took when you took the auburn job uh i remember us having a conversation this was uh, i i don't think you'd be uh upset about this now because you've obviously had tremendous success but you said hey i did it at uh, southern indiana i did it at wisconsin milwaukee i did it at tennessee i think i can do it again at auburn but I'm not sure. Uh, And I I remember that that conversation just because you're taking a new job. And that first couple of years at Auburn, I'm looking right now, you had losing records. You finished 13th in the SEC. You had everything rolling at Tennessee, the recruiting. You went to the Elite Eight. You're a play away from the Final Four. How much self-doubt did you have early in your tenure at Auburn because I imagine finishing yep. what four and fourteen and five and thirteen those first two years had to be humbling for you.
0: Um, you know what? The, you're absolutely accurate with every single word you used except the last one. Um, I am a very humble person. Um, I know I don't act like it, but I really <laughs> am, and I'm not paying myself a. I'm not paying myself yeah. a compliment because I don't think a ton of myself. I don't. Um, and but you're right. I had. immense self doubt like I went to my I went to Jay and I said Jay listen I've been here two years Um, I was out three Um, what I'm doing right now is not working not cutting edge Um, when I went to when I was at Milwaukee in my days at Tennessee what we were doing it was in fuego I mean people wanted to know what we were doing and how we were doing it we were on top or you know or at least you know for an up and comer for not being a blue blood and absolutely, I had tremendous self-doubt. Um, and w- even thought about, you know, man, I might, I might have lost my touch, right? Maybe. Yeah. And um, I wound up, you know, recruiting a couple of good players, re- you know, making a couple of adjustments on my staff, studying a little bit, and uh, got it back. And for the last five years, nobody's won more. We've won three championships in five years at Auburn. We've won more games than anybody in the league in the last five years. We've beaten Kentucky seven years in a row. Now we haven't beat them every time we played them. Probably beat them half the time, but we—I mean—we've done the things that you need to do um, to be considered one of the best programs in the, in the SEC.
1: I meant to ask you another question back because I do think it, it factors in here. This is wins and losses. I'm Clay Travis, Bruce Pearl. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. You mentioned having young kids. How do you balance being a dad with having, and this could be true for being a mom too, with having a highly intense and pressurized job that is so incredibly competitive you seem to have a, based on my experience, a really good relationship by and large with your kids. How do you balance that? What advice would you give now? You said you're 62, your kids are grown. Uh, there's a lot of people who are listening to this right now that have young kids and they're trying to be successful professionally, but also get that work-life balance. Do you have any words of wisdom for people out there who are trying to balance all of this?
0: Yep. You know, um, We go to work every single day, basically, so that our kids will have it better than we had it. Um, And sometimes that takes us away from the the, the precious ones we're trying to take care of. Um, Honesty is is the best policy. My kids always knew where I was. And there were trade-offs. I didn't have any fishing trips or ski trips, not many golf vacations with the boys, and I'm not complaining. Um, I worked, and I hung out with my family. Now, did I enjoy working? Did I go on a golf trip every now and then that was work-related? Yeah. But my kids always knew where I was, and when I was away from them and I had to miss something, um, we talked about it, and I tried to get them to understand. Now, I didn't miss a parent-teacher conference, I made as many games and plays and things that I possibly could make. That took a priority, and my kids knew it. And then the other thing I did, and my dad did this with me too. My dad took me, he worked every Saturday, but he took me to the office on Saturday. I worked out in the warehouse while he worked in the office on Saturdays, and it was a way for us to come and go together because he worked six days a week. He could have gone in the office on Saturday and not taken me, I always took my kids on the bus. I always brought – when I went on the road, I always took one of them with me. I had one of them when I was in southern Indiana. Now, when I got to Tennessee, not quite as much because of the way we traveled. Um, But you know what? Do the best you can. Make sure your kids know where you are. And and if you can't be there, make sure they at least understand why and, and provide them with an explanation.
1: What would you mentioned Auburn being such a fantastic place? What makes Auburn such a fantastic place in your mind? What do you wish the rest of the country was like, like Auburn is? What does Auburn do well? What would the country? What could the country learn from Auburn in your experience?
0: Well, you know what? First of all, um, as you know, Clay, I am conservative. Um, I grew up a Kennedy Democrat. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm much more Republican leaning um and and I love our country and I'm a patriot and uh, I believe in values and I believe the sanctity of life uh, I, 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 I'm a, I I believe in God um, I pray before meals um, and um, and I try to live a, a life where I'm doing the things that would give God a chance uh, to to bless me for it um, how you treat people um, You know, the kindness that you show, the generosity that you show, Um, you know, um, that's kind of what Auburn is. Um, If you're interested in a different girl every night or going out to a different bar all the time, and if you want to run fast, then you need need to go somewhere else because you're not going to fit in at Auburn. Um, our student-athletes, our students, they're they're grinding, they're training, they're working. We're having fun while we're doing it. But you know what? Sometimes fun is going to watch Suni Lee in a gymnastics meet uh, rather than going out to the bar and getting trashed. Now, back when I went to Boston College, it was different. It was sort of different then. It was like Animal Farm. That was what college was. It was Animal Farm. And uh, you remember that movie, right? Oh, yeah. Was It not Animal Farm. Animal House. Uh, Animal House. Animal House. Animal House. Animal Farm was the book. Uh, Animal House. And and that was what I grew up thinking college was supposed to be. So how drunk could I get? You know, like I said, how many times could I streak? You know, that's what that's what that's what that's what I thought it was supposed to be. That is exactly opposite of what Auburn is. And um, you know, we're going to stand at attention for the national anthem. We're going to point our right hand over our heart and our left hand behind our back, and we're going to stay at attention until the flag leaves the floor. And and um, you know what? And if you don't like it, get over it. And if and if and if and if you if you want to do something else, that's fine. It's up to you. But do not criticize me for doing what I feel is right. And that's one of the things that we lost too. Like like, um, you know, in my family, um, I've got a couple of children that are way left of center. All right. Yeah. I got a couple of children that are way right of center, and I'm actually kind of proud that that we're a mixed family, if you will. But we're going to sit down over dinner, and we're going to have a conversation, and we're not going to get elevated. And I'm, I may not agree with what you think about what's going on in Ukraine right now, or what's going on in Israel right now, or what's going on at the border right now, or what's going on in Washington right now, but I'm going to respect your opinion, and I'm going to listen to it. And I'm not going to find eight ways to, it, to, to, to tell you that you're wrong, even though, guess what? I, I don't agree with you. Um the difference at Auburn is we should be able to share our thoughts and exchange of ideas. And at so many other places, particularly places that are more liberal, uh, it's their way or the highway. And if you don't agree with them, somehow you're either a racist or, uh, or, or part of the basketball uh, of deplorables um, or, or something that just is um, not very complimentary.
1: By the way, I agree with almost everything you said. This is not going to be a surprise. You and I uh, see eye to eye on a lot of things. Let me ask you this. I love Charles Barkley. Um, He obviously is Auburn basketball prior to you. A lot of people, when they heard Auburn basketball, would think Charles Barkley. What is Charles Barkley like? What does he mean for Auburn basketball and the university as a whole?
0: Charles Barkley is like this. When you are at a party, and it's a crowded room. There are people in that room that are talking to you, and they're actually looking over your shoulder, trying to see who the next best guest is that's walking yes. into the party. When Charles Barkley is talking to you, he's looking at you, he's engaged with you, and, and and most likely you're either the janitor, the bartender, the server. And uh, hold on a second, Michael Michael Jordan. I'll be right with you. Hold on one second, Mike. He'll finish his conversation with you yeah. before he gets to me or Michael Jordan or anybody else in the room. He is genuine. He is kind. He feels grateful to Auburn for having stayed with him at a time when he was young and uh, you know, got into some trouble and recognizes that Sonny Smith as his coach, Auburn as his university, Coach Pat Dye as its leader, Help get him from where he was to where he went. And, um, you know, Charles Barkley is a great American. Man you know, loves Auburn.
1: He does. And, and I've been fortunate to get go out to dinner with him a couple of times. Uh, we overlap. I don't know him perfectly well. But he gave oh, – I was out to dinner with him once, and I think you'll appreciate this advice. It's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten. Uh, he said, Clay – uh, this was early in my radio career because uh, the guys who d- worked down at Jock's, I think you probably know Lance Taylor, Ryan, uh, Jim Dunaway, uh, Ryan Brown. Yeah. They had a great show. Um, we were out to dinner with them, and they have Barkley on all the time because Lance has been buddies with Barkley for 20-some-odd years. We're out to dinner, Lance, me, and, and Barkley um, in Birmingham. And, uh, and Barkley said, uh, Clay, you know, because we had just done the show, he said, I got great advice for you in media. He said, if you, and I think this is great advice for life, but it certainly works in an industry where you might be in public eye sometimes. He said, if you worry about the people who don't like you, then the people who do like you won't like you anymore. (laughs) And I just thought that was so incredibly profound. This is before social media had taken off. This is probably, you know, 2006, 2007, we're having this conversation and it makes more sense today than it even did back then, but... I use that with my own kids, right? Because you're someone who's comfortable in your own skin. We've all seen you shirtless for God's sakes. I (laughs) like, I I am very, I am very comfortable in my own skin for better or worse. I'm going to tell you what I think. But if you disagree with me, that doesn't mean to your point on your, uh, your family. Like if somebody says, Hey, you're, you're crazy. That's an idiotic opinion. I'll laugh with you. You know, clink a beer glass. We can agree to disagree. It's not going to change the way that I feel about you on a one-on-one basis. And, you're that way. And I think Barkley kind of distilled it, right? I mean, that is a perfect advice, especially in the social media age when everybody's terrified, no matter what you do for a living, you're afraid of what you might say on Facebook, it's going to cost you your job. You say something on Twitter or Instagram or wherever it might be. And that leads me into this question. Recruiting and talking with kids. And you you mentioned, you know, like every time your phone goes off, I'm sure you look down if it's 2 a.m. and you're like, uh oh, you know what might have gone on. You're 62 years old. Are kids different now than they were when you started coaching? If so, how? Do they need coaching more now than they did when you were younger? How would you assess the trajectory of the country through the kids that you coach in your experience?
0: Well, that's a great question. I I think that um, I would say the kids have changed a little bit recently, and I'll tell you why in a second. But my general thought to you is no, they haven't changed that much they still want discipline. They still want to be held accountable. They still want to be coached. They still want to be pushed. They still want to be great. And I think that we think because of all of the things that go on, including a lot of the culture and the, the, the transfer portals and the, if it's not, if my AO, if my little league, this little league team is play, isn't pitching me, uh, I'm going to go, my parents are going to get me across town and I'm going to go play for the other little league team. And rather than, you know, we, we, we flee rather than fight, um, you know, so often. Um, but I think generally, and by the way, it ain't the kid's fault. It's our fault. We haven't taught them. And, and and we have not been great examples and so quit blaming the kids when they screw up it's it's our responsibility to coach them and teach them and 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 to be the adults you know in the room the greatest challenge right now we have clay is the social media is the is is the platform um, and the kids are spending an enormous amount of time on it and on their phones and uh and and The time they're spending doing that, they're spending a lot less time either going outside and playing and learning how to interact with one another uh, or, you know, the days of, you know, just going down a playground and just playing some ball or, you know, going out there and throwing a couple of sweatshirts as first, second and third base and playing stickball versus, you know, having organized umpires and selling concessions and travel ball and all that. I know things have changed, but I'm old school So we've lost some of that. But if the kids have changed, it's not the kids' fault.
1: If I asked you the question about Tennessee, I want to ask you the question about Auburn. If you could go back and re-coach any game at Auburn, which game would it be and why? Is there one that immediately comes to mind?
0: Um. You know, it doesn't come right to mind. I don't know uh, that I could replay the Virginia game again, and and I, and I think we did the things that you're supposed to do down the stretch to win that game. Um, obviously, was Virginia was better than
1: you? Is it easier if you lose to a team like you said Duke was better than Tennessee the year you might have been able to go to the Final Four? Yeah, Do you it, think it, that it, UVA it, it, team it, it, was better? If you played a hundred times, would they beat you more than they than you beat them?
0: I think we. I think it'd be pretty darn close. I really yeah. do. Um, and and obviously at the end of the Virginia game we had a couple of really tough calls um, that 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 prevented us from getting that that, caught, that wound up being factors at the yeah. at the end. Um, um, maybe the last game that I that I coached against uh, Miami, um, we were the better team. We got upset by Miami, um, and I would have done a number of different things there um, differently. And so probably the last game I coached would would be the game that I would coach differently
1: what um if you win in that you've been to the final four how much different is your life if you win a national championship or you don't win a national championship in terms of the way you feel
0: about yourself great question uh nothing um wouldn't affect me at all but the perception would be enormously different um you get to the final four you win a national championship your perception is different. What's your perception of Bruce Pearl? Your perception of Bruce Pearl is what I did at Tennessee, you know, six NCAA tournaments, you know, a couple of sweet 16s, an Elite Eight, one game in the Final Four. What's your perception of me at Auburn? It's based on these championships and, 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 and things along those lines. Um, and, and, and the more you do, the more your perception changes. It it, it, it really doesn't – it would not change my perception of, of me Um I'm just. Uh, I don't. I don't see myself um, in in that same light. Um, others perhaps do, um, and um, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to win the next one. I'm just trying to. I'm just going to try to w- win the next one. And you know, when I when I when I retire, and I look back on it, um, then all of a sudden I think those championships will matter um, more than they actually do right now. And then, and then, then, the biggest question would be, you know, how did I make, how did I impact my coaches and their families' lives? How did they impact my community? Did I make my community better? Did I, did, did, was I generous? Uh, did I help people that were in need? Um, you know, d- did I help my student athletes become men, and become better fathers? And, um, and then, did I utilize my platform, Clay, to try to make a difference in the world? And, um, you know, that's, you know, th- one of the things that is, I get myself in some trouble sometimes is I'm very active in social media about things involving Israel and the Middle East, and yep. um, I get involved in, and, and on the political side of things because as a Jewish man, when we said never again, there are limitations to what I can do to ensure that we'll be never again. But if there are atrocities taking place in China or in Ukraine or in the Middle East, then I cannot be silent, even if I'm perceived to be on the wrong side of an issue, or if my fans or people that, you know, in basketball say, look, you need to really worry about coaching. Uh, If you were so worried about that, you'd have beaten Miami. Instead, you're worried about the wrong stuff. It's not that I'm worried about it, it's just that for the people that are worried about it, that don't have my platform my voice can give them hope that there are people talking about it there are people that are pointing it out there are people that are calling it out and trying to trying to prevent some of these things from you know from happening from 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 our country getting into a awful treaty with Iran and putting billions of dollars into the pockets of a country and a leadership that is the sworn enemy of the state of Israel. I, I just, as, 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 as an ally of, 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 of the United States, and, and one of its greatest allies, I don't even see how that's possible, unless you really, really believe that the people that you're sitting across the table from are telling you the truth, that they really don't care about ballistic missiles or getting a nuclear weapon, or they really don't care about trying to find a way to sell their oil uh, through the Russians and having that be uh, uh, an absolutely backdoor for the, for the Russians to be able to avoid all these economic sanctions that we're putting on them and Iran. And, oh, we're letting the Russians and the Chinese negotiate a nuclear treaty with Iran that's going to affect all of our Abraham Accord allies and Israel. We're, we're doing it. Oh, and, and by the way, we're not allowed in the room. Like in other words, when we go to Vienna, like the American delegation, we sit in another room.
1: Like we're not you are to so in you presence. are so well informed on this, by the way, and and I'm nodding along as you're speaking about all this. Uh, and, and it makes me want to unpack this a little bit. So let me start here. When did you go to Israel for the first time? We talked to early on in this conversation. I'm Clay Travis. He's Bruce Pearl. This is Wins and Losses. We talked about growing up for you uh, in Boston and going to Boston College, being Jewish, experiencing what that was like, the divisions of Boston and you're a kid growing up, bringing people together through sports. When did you go to Israel for the first time? And I know you have uh, you have coached in athletics in Israel. Uh, what has that experience been like for you in terms of formulating and defining you as an adult man?
0: Clay, I was, I'm, I'm grateful that you asked that question. The first time I went to Israel was in 1967 when I was in Boston sitting in the den of my grandfather as seven years old. And he's watching TV. So I'm actually not in Israel. I'm actually in Boston. My grandfather was a plumber a strong man, a tough man, and uh, a quiet man, a a, a man that kept kosher, that went to services on a regular basis, um, uh, my idol. And uh, he was weeping watching the television set in 1967. Papa went to bed really early because he got up really early every every night. So after supper, Papa would wash up. And very shortly after supper and the sun went down, Papa would go to bed but but this night, he was up late, and he was crying. And as a seven-year-old, I walked up to Papa and said, Papa, what's wrong? What are you crying about? He pat me on his lap, and we watched the news, and it was, it was a six-day war. And he told me about Israel. He told me how important the state of Israel was, and that if Israel had existed when his family was fleeing Ukraine, that if Israel was... Was existed back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s the 6 million Jews that were murdered in the Holocaust may have only been a million because they would have had a place to go and be safe. Many tried to get into this country. My papa emigrated to this country in 1932. He was 14 years old. He became a citizen when he was, when he, when he was in his mid-30s. And he just was afraid to go to sleep because he was afraid that when he woke up Israel would not be there. Because he explained how Israel was surrounded by enemies that wanted her, that wanted Jerusalem. They wanted it from the river to the sea in 48. They wanted it from 67. They wanted it in 73 during the Yom Kippur War. And you know what? Some of them still want it now. And they can't have it.
1: When did you go to Israel for the first time, physically?
0: Almost embarrassed to say that it wasn't until 2009. Um, why I did it take you
1: that long, and why did because, you go for the first time?
0: Right, because my plan was to either join the army here in this country uh, and serve for a year, or actually go to Israel and serve for one year. That was my plan. And then, as I as I'd mentioned to you before, I'm a 21 year old senior at Boston College. Still with the plan of either going to the United States military or the Israeli military, I didn't, didn't, hadn't decided which one, when Dr. Tom Davis offered me a job to go with him to Stanford in March of my senior year. And so that thought of serving either my country or Israel um, went away, and I never went back. I went back in 2009 where I coached in the Maccabi Games. I coached my son, Stephen. And uh, we won the gold medal. Uh, we beat Israel in overtime in the gold medal game. And thank God it's really hard to beat Israel in Israel. But we managed to do it, in a game of basketball. And, um, and since that time, I've been to Israel a couple more times. I'm going again in May, and I'm going again in August with my team. I'm bringing the Auburn basketball team to Israel because I want my players to see the diversity to see that it is not an apartheid state, to see that about half the population in the state of Israel are almost as dark as they are, and I want them to unlearn some of the lies that they've been told, um, and then maybe someday they want to come back there and play basketball because, other than the NBA, one of the one of the one of the best places to play professionally is in Israel.
1: What was the experience like to win with your son in 2009 in Israel?
0: Danny Grunfeld was on the team Ernie's son um, my son Steven we had some great friends that were on that team Todd Golden who is the new head coach at Florida played for me on that team Todd was on oh, wow. my assistance yeah he was one of my assistants at Auburn when I got the Auburn job. Todd's a very, very dear friend. He's going to do a great job for the Gators. Um, and, um, man, it was just an honor to wear the USA. You know, and it was an honor for me to take those young men over there and learn more about their roots. And, you know, and, and again, I have a love for my country, the United States of America, that, that, that is different than my love for Israel. Uh, I'm grateful for Israel. Um, I owe everything to this country. I would die for this country. Um, I probably would give my life for Israel as well. Um, but I want I, I I think the way you get to feel that way is by going over there and experiencing it. And unfortunately, Clay, just like so many things that you hear and read, it's, it's people want to know the truth about it, and it's so very, very difficult to get the truth. I'll just put it to you in this, in this context. There are 9 million people in Israel. There are 6 million Jewish people, and there are 3 million Arabs living in the state of Israel. About 2 million of those Arabs are, U- are Israeli citizens. And most of them live far better quality of life than the Arabs that live in the surrounding countries in Egypt or Lebanon or Syria or Iraq or Iran or whatever, there might be a dozen Jews, if any. They're not allowed. Uh,
1: Jews aren't allowed. I want to go. I've never been to Israel. I mean, I love to travel. I would love to experience it. It's it's on my list to go. Uh, You know, I was raised, yeah.
0: Guess what? Next, Next May. Yes. Next May. I don't know if you know Governor Bill Lee very well.
1: I do I do he's an auburn guy I, I'm sure that's auburn how you guy know him. yeah
0: and he's an awesome guy and um, you know depending on how things are in his state because he would never leave unless things were in a, in, in a great spot, Bill Lee wants to come to Israel with us as well you need, you need to come on that trip I would, I oh, would I'd be, love to I would so love uh, to walk where Jesus walked and uh, with you and your your family and uh, that'd be such a cool trip.
1: That's May of, uh, May of 23. Yes, sir. I'm in, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm literally writing it down right now. May of 23. I want to make that trip. I'd love to go. I've never been. Um, it's a place that I've always wanted to go. And you obviously would be able to, uh, to help show us around a couple more questions. First of all, I appreciate all the time. I know you're at the final four. There's a ton of things going on down there. I'm Clay Travis. He's Bruce Pearl. It's wins and losses. Um, you mentioned coaching in, in, uh, in Israel with Steven, who's on your uh, coaching staff now, great guy. Uh, maybe one day will be a head coach himself. What advice would you give everybody out there? I coach Little League Baseball, Little League Basketball, I've done it all with my boys. How do you coach your son? <laughs> what advice would you give for people out there? Who, I bet a lot of them are listening right now. How do you coach your son? How did, how did you find it? Not only, you know, like I'm sure you, uh, you know, in, in college, right, where he's on the team with you at the University of Tennessee. And how is it more difficult to coach or have uh, coach your son when he's a member of the team, or more difficult to be the head coach and have your son as an assistant coach on the staff? I'm curious yeah. what the dynamics of that are like.
0: Yeah. Well, it is hard to coach your son. Uh, it is way easier to let somebody else coach him. Uh, yeah. It is hard. Um, you know, I, 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 I love to tell this story, but, you know, um, whether it was when he was a kid or not, you know, Steven always threw his bat. He fouled out when we lost or, 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 or he cried when, we, when he fouled out or when we lost. Um, and I always tell parents, I'd rather teach him, I'd rather try and teach him to care a little less. And the care, um, the kids that did know whether we won or lost, and what the score was, and didn't yeah. know whether to be happy or sad, win or lose. That, those kids, I had a real problem with. Um, I didn't have a problem with a kid that threw his bat or cried when we got beat. I could, we could manage that. We could channel that, that anger. Um, the advice would be this: just try not to teach your treat your kid worse than you treat the other kids. Try and be fair, because although some will criticize you for. Favoring your kid? In reality, we don't. We actually are harder on our kid. He should be playing shortstop. We'll play him at second base. He should be batting third. We bat him sixth. Because um, we're afraid that you know maybe somebody would accuse us of favoritism. Um, and so try not to be harder on him. I remember one time after Steven didn't play very well, got in the car, I said, who do you want to talk to, your dad or your coach? He said, I don't want to talk to either one of you.
1: that is fantastic um what about coaching with your son compared to coaching your son now he's on your staff how is that different
0: easier it's a lot easier um you know and, and 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 look no matter what your life's greatest accomplishments are they are the greatest accomplishments because of not what you achieved, but who you achieve them with. And so that's why, you know, weddings or certain celebrations of life, births of a child, um, you know, things, winning a championship, when you do it with your coaches and your players and your wife and your kids, they just, it's so much more meaningful. And so it is awesome coaching with Steven. And he is, he's ready to be a great head coach someday and, I'm hoping he's going to be the next coach at Auburn.
1: If you, how many more, you're 62. I'm sure you're looking out now into the future. How many more years do you think you can coach at a high level? You mentioned when you came back to Auburn, you thought for a couple of years, hey, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the change, get the turn. You obviously have things rolling in terms of SEC success. How many years do you see into the future that you think you can coach at a high level?
0: Clay, as long as I can stay healthy and I can continue to compete uh, and, and give our kids a chance to be successful, um, I'll coach. Um, but I'm not going to be one of those guys that's coaching, um, um, you know, in my 70s, for example. No chance. Um, so I've got an eight-year contract. I'm 62. Um I don't know that I I make it all eight, um, but I don't worry about just take it one year at a time, take it one day at a time. But I can tell you in my crystal ball that I I, 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 I have to make up for what I lack in all the things that I lack with effort and energy. And so as long as I can put forth the effort and energy and we're competitive, I'll keep coaching.
1: You have one game that you can pick anyone to coach for you. Your life is on the line. Which coach are you picking and why to win that game? I always think this is a fun question for coaches. You can't pick yourself. Yep. Yep. Uh, who would you pick? Who do you think would be that guy that you would select?
0: Yeah. If, uh, it, uh, first of all, there's no chance I'd pick myself.
1: And uh, <laughs> me, my life depended on
0: it. It'd be Rick Pitino. I think Rick Pitino... Um, is the best I've ever gone up against. Um, And the reason why is he knows what he's doing, but he also knows what you're doing almost better than you know what you're doing. He knows why you're doing it and he knows how to prevent you from doing it. Um, He's been, he's been my toughest matchup.
1: Last couple of questions here for, and I appreciate the time. If you don't get that job at Stanford in 1982, If, uh, Dr. Tom Davis doesn't say, Hey, get on this plane with me. We're going to Palo Alto. You mentioned that you might've gone into the service. Do you think you would have found your way still back to coaching or do you think your life would have gone in a completely different direction and where do you think it might've ended up if coaching was not
0: the answer? Um, I hope I would have gone to the military and then that may have sent me in a direction, um, but it didn't happen that way. Again, that wasn't God's plan. Um, I do believe that uh, I, w- I, I was supposed to do what I'm doing. I do. But if I hadn't gotten to coaching right then, I don't know that door where or how and when that door would have been opened for me again. And so I would have just taken a, um, a, a job, a regular job. Um, I have no doubt that in that job, I wouldn't have found a way to win. I wouldn't have found a way to be successful. Um, I don't care whether we're playing pickup or whether we're playing hopscotch. Um, I'm going to try to win. And um, and uh, the only confidence that I have is that is that i i'll I work to try to find a way, and by the way i'm okay with not winning i'm okay with losing. I get that um, i just I just have a lot more fun winning <laughs>
1: right? everybody everybody knows that feeling. what do you hope when you hang up the whistle, so to speak, and your career is over as a coach? What do you hope people think about Bruce Pearl as a coach? you mentioned I think it's so well said that I remember having this conversation, I'm I'm sure you've met him at some point, with Derek Dooley, and and he said, you know, when I was 25 years old and I decided to walk out of the law office and go into coaching, getting to be the head coach of the University of Tennessee would have been a really successful tenure. But if people look at it and say, well, I'm only going to think about the three years that he was the coach at Tennessee, they don't think about the path that you had to get to to get to that point. And I always think that's instructive for everybody out there listening. People say, you know, hey, when you take over Rush Limbaugh, what if you fail? I'm like, well, first of all, you can't fear failure. Uh, and, and the opportunity was too good to pass up and the influence was too good to pass up. But if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. You know, I had to do a lot of things right to get to that position to take that job. And I think if you only succeed, it probably means you aren't trying to stretch yourself too far. And I say all of that to ask you the question. You're 62 now. You may coach for eight more years, like you said, make it into 70. What do you hope people take? Again, to your point, people may only define you. If they've only been paying attention to Bruce Pearl at Auburn, they think one thing. If they only paid attention to Bruce Pearl at Tennessee, but there's probably some people listening right now who watched your teams play at Southern Indiana, and they've known you for most of your professional career. What do you hope people take from your Coaching career.
0: Well, I would hope, Clay, that they would take um, the approach that that he was more than just a coach. That he took his job as a coach and a teacher in the game of basketball very seriously, and he was and he was very good at it. His teams won championships. Um, is there a chance that the runs at Southern Indiana or Wisconsin, Milwaukee, at Tennessee, and at Auburn? Were as good a run as they had had in their history. Is that possible? Uh, Coach Barnes right now has a has a real opportunity to uh, to get there with Coach Mears. Uh, I, I didn't. I wasn't there as long. Uh, we had a good run when we were there, though. There's no question. Um, and so that's important, but probably more important than the success on the basketball court is that he cared about things. Um, that had nothing to do with basketball. He cared about his players. He cared about his staff compared about their successes, um, their preparation for whatever else was like, he cared about the community and, and worked really hard in the community to make it better. Um, and, and, and loved our country. And, 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 you know, like I said, would have, would, would do the things that a citizen, um, uh, would do, um, to help make our communities and make our country, um, the best we possibly can. And so, um, things like being a good, like you, you had said to me, you said, uh, you were aware that uh, my family is close and you judge me based on, you got great kids and you know, you could see the relationship. That's, that's important to me. You know, that people would, would, would respect me as a, as a man, uh, as, as a father, um, as a husband. Um, and, um, you know, I want the whole thing. You know, I want, I want, I want, you know, I want that. I, I can't, I don't worry about what I can control. And, um, and I, and I don't worry about what people think because people are going to think what they think. Um, I, I, I probably care more about the people that I either respect and admire. I, I probably care what they think more than I do, more than I really do what everybody else thinks.
1: I wrote down May of 2023. I hope that we can make that trip. I really would genuinely love to go to Israel, spend that time over there, bring my family, have that experience. Uh, Bruce Pearl, you guys can tell I'm a fan, does fantastic work in many different facets, uh, both at uh, all the places he's coached, but all the lives that he has influenced and also pretty fun guy. Uh, Appreciate you guys. This has been Wins and Losses. I am Clay Travis. He is Auburn men's basketball coach Bruce Pearl. If you enjoyed this one, check out some of the 40-plus other conversations, and thank you for spending time with us.